Hi and welcome to This Is Strong. My name is Nikki Vincent. I um, hope you're keeping well and keeping sane in your version of this lockdown. Uh, I'm keeping on. It's fine. Uh, It's a juggle. There's a lot going on, but I'm sure it's the same for you. Um, I am working hard to bring more episodes to you, but it's really hard because uh, life's been turned upside down, so do bear with me. But please do subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you are because there are things in the pipeline and you don't want to miss any episodes. And also it helps let me know that you're out there and you're listening and you're enjoying them. So yeah, keep your comments coming, um, like and share with your friends and uh, I'll keep going. Um, Today's episode is a really special one. This is the first time I've ever recorded with somebody that I've never actually met. To this day, because of lockdown, I wasn't even able to meet her to record, so we recorded remotely. Um, Before I recorded the last episode, this is Chandra, Chandra had said to me, okay, fine, I will talk to you, but you really need to speak to this lady, because her story is amazing. So, um, as soon as I recorded Chandra's podcast, I went on to read this lady's book because she's a published author and the book that she has written is based on her own experience and I mean it's not it's it's an amazing book in itself but having spoken to her um, she is just the most amazing person because she went through something uh, really horrific Um, she was violently assaulted and this podcast is about rape so if that is going to trigger anything for you then do proceed with caution um she's fine she's recovered this was 12 years ago um but she still um has a lot to say about the process of recovery and how we deal with this crime in our society and you know she's just an amazing person so this is winnie and this is strong winnie hi thank you for joining me it's uh it's been i've been looking forward to this chat for so long yeah well thank you for having me on your podcast i always like chatting to new people yeah it's really um i must say that um usually i uh i'm able to explain to the listener how i how i know my guest but in this case i don't know you at all i mean uh you were recommended like chandra who, who was in the last episode this is chandra um straight away when I contacted her to be in the episode she straight away said oh you don't want to talk to me you want to talk to Winnie and uh, I was like okay I will I will I will but first of all let's do you Um, and so she said I have to talk to you um, because you are the most strong and resilient person that that she knows and uh, when we get into it we'll all find out why because I I have to say I totally agree with her. Um, Now the reason she uh, wanted me to talk to her was because you went through a completely a horrific experience being assaulted and raped uh, by a stranger, which is um, obviously it's the rarest kind of assault, isn't it? The yeah. rarest kind of rape yeah. to be um, assaulted by a stranger. But it's the kind of one that we all fear the most, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, as, as a woman, that's the one I think about or worry about way more than the one where you, you rape by somebody you know. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird, because obviously the statistics are that, you know, one in 10 rapes are by the stranger. And so you're much more, one a person's much more likely to be attacked by somebody they know, by a family member or their own partner or a friend or an acquaintance or a work colleague. Um, but we all have, I think, 
all women somehow, you know, as women and girls, we grow up with that fear of the stranger in the bushes. And I think yeah. a lot of that's due to the media. A lot of that's due to kind of the stories that we're told when we're growing up and, you know, don't get into a stranger's car or, you know, mm. if you're walking down a alleyway, like don't like avoid alleyways late at night because you never know what strangers can do. Um, so it's kind of this weird irony that the majority of rapes aren't that kind. And yet when it does happen to you, you know, for me, I was like, shit, this is actually happening. Like, you know, everything that you feared growing up is actually happening now. Um, so it is kind of, I mean, you know, the whole experience of sexual assault for anybody is very surreal. Um, but I think, you know, for me in particular, um, there was the fact that it was happening to me and then it suddenly mm. it was all over the media at the time as well, partly because yeah. it fit into that classic myth of the rape by the stranger right. that also made the whole experience even weirder for me. And when, because you uh, were, um, you were so, you loved traveling on your own. And it was one of the things that you um, enjoyed most about uh, traveling was the solitude of it and stuff. Is that right? Because like, yeah. I, I just want to explain that you wrote a book called The Dark Chapter, which I've read, which is fantastic. And it's not, it's not a biography as such, but it's based on the experience. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of a, I describe it as like a fictional reimagining of, what happened, uh, you know, so I've moved a few things around to fictionalize some things and there's this entirely other different perspective, which you see, which is the perpetrator's yeah. perspective. And yeah, that I'll get onto that because yeah. that is an astounding side to the book that you would, anyway, we'll get onto that. But I just wanted to find out mm. when you were solo traveling around the world and stuff, was, was, was there an element of fear in your mind anyway about, oh God, maybe I should take more care. I shouldn't do this. Or were you completely gung ho about it? I mean, I was completely gung ho about traveling. I mean, I, I would, I would never. Well, now looking back on it, I'd be like, okay, there's some stupid things I did, but um, you know, in most of those instances, I was fine. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, certainly my mom wasn't pleased about the fact that I was traveling on my own. Um, but and I think a lot of people would be like, oh, that's crazy that you know, at the age of 19 you're backpacking around Europe on my own uh, on your own but like you know other people do it right I mean there's yeah. there's loads of teenagers and 20 somethings that are out there traveling around the world on their own and yeah. for me I found this to be the most empowering thing ever you know and I, I still think I owe a lot of my current perspective on life and you know my enjoyment of the world to having traveled on my own so um I mean it's funny talking about it now during a pandemic and lockdown when I've no mm. idea when I'm ever going to travel again. But, you know, it's, I, I would say, you know, some of the greatest joys of my life came from solo travel. And yeah. it's scary on some level um, because, again, you know, you grow up with this fear of what strangers can do to you. But I think the more I traveled on my own, the more I realized actually the world is for the most part full of good people. Yeah, there's a few weird ones out there. And, you know, obviously there are ill-intentioned people but for the most part everyone's really nice and friendly and just the amount of learning and the amount of exploration you can do um and how how drastically you know your world perspective can change just from traveling on your own was yeah. you know for me it was it was incredible experiences so yeah I mean it just sounded amazing and the uh, the on on that day I mean you were just hiking right you were just planning to go for a hike which is something that you'd done loads of times before yeah yeah, I mean, I was in Northern Ireland, so I mean, to give a bit of context, I, you know, obviously I'm American. You can tell that from my voice, mm. but I've lived in London since 
2002 and the assault happened in 2008 so it was actually on what was effectively a business trip to Belfast um, in Northern Ireland so I I actually know Ireland quite well so even prior to that I had studied in, in Cork in on the other side of Ireland um, for my master's degree and you know had studied Irish literature and Irish folklore so I kind of had this like serious fascination with Irish culture in a lot of ways. Um, so, and then what ended up happening was for work at the time I was working as a film producer. Um, but you know, at any time I had to do sort of a business type trip, I would try to tack on like a day of exploring wherever I was going, you know, mm. wherever I visited. So, um, I was in Belfast and I decided to like kind of fly back to London a day later so I could spend this day going on a hike, um, and kind of the West side of Belfast. And it's it's a bizarre um, attack to read about because you weren't doing anything unusual. You weren't, you, you know, it wasn't dark. You weren't uh, wearing ridiculous clothes. You know, it was it was you were being completely normal. You weren't you hadn't put yourself in in any dangerous situation. No, yeah. I mean, there will always be people saying like, "Oh, well, women should be hiking on their own," which is you know the most ludicrous thing I've ever had heard, right? But um, you know, for yeah. me, like, I yeah, I mean, that's something I frequently did. I would frequently visit a place on my own for work or for leisure and then go hiking mm. on my own. So it wasn't unusual for me at all. I mean, it may have been unusual for somebody in Belfast to see someone who, you know, is, looks Chinese and has an American accent, like walking around their local park on, you know, on their own, on her own. But, you mm. know, for me, it wasn't unusual to, to be in a, in a new city exploring a hike. Well, I just don't think that it should be seen as unusual. Mm. You're going for a walk. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but in the middle of the day. Yeah. But anyway, um I mean one of the things I listened to a TED talk that you gave and one of the things that you said on that was that you didn't do anything wrong. No. He was the one that did something wrong. Yeah. Um and uh I think that's it, it's very very easy to always blame find an element of blame for the victim. Oh, they shouldn't have been doing that. She shouldn't have been wearing those shoes or she should have, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but in your case, it's almost impossible to do that anyway, even yeah. if you really, really wanted to, because you weren't doing anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of victims struggle with afterwards, because I mean, every victim, myself included, will always think, you know, what could I have done to avoid that? You know, and mm. that immediately can slide quite easily into like, oh, it was my fault or I was somehow responsible yeah. for that having happened to me. Um, and at least I could say, you know, I, I literally went out there to go for a walk you know yeah. I had zero interest in speaking to somebody uh, or you know I just really wanted yeah. to be on my own and this thing happened to me um, whereas I could imagine a victim in a different situation psychologically might get quite wound up thinking oh I shouldn't have stayed for that extra yeah. drink but at the end of the day yeah. it's never your fault it's the, it's the fault of the person who decides to do that to you um, and that's yes. the important thing to get across that it's the perpetrator who causes the crime and it's never anything that the victim does and the weird thing about your your in um your crime the crime that was committed on you was that the perpetrator just i can't imagine that he would have looked threatening at first no he wasn't it, no because he was 15 yeah is that right yeah i mean that's that's astounding so so you weren't immediately worried you were you know you thought he was just a kid right yeah yeah i mean and i was 29 at the time so i you know i was obviously quite used to traveling around you know on my own and then this teenage kid came up to me and said he was lost in the direction so we had this quite bizarre conversation um and at the time I didn't feel any threat because I just was like okay here's this 
kid who's kind of weird who wants to have a conversation but it, it didn't occur to me that you know hmm. a half hour later he was going to try to do that to me um so i mean what ended up happening was that we had a bizarre conversation i eventually was like okay i didn't come out here to talk to this kid i came out here to go on a hike so i kind of politely tried to excuse myself from the mm. conversation and say hey i have to make a phone call to a friend you know that you know women yeah. do that all the time you know when I a know. weird guy comes up to you you're always trying to make excuses to get away from them so i did I that think, yeah yeah go on, go and, on and then um and then managed to carry on with the walk for a little bit longer. But what I didn't realize was that he had been following me like the entire time. So obviously he had that kind of intention to do something. God. And the weird thing is, is that, I mean, it's interesting that you said I, I tried to politely excuse myself. It's, it's that politeness is, I think, something that we women fall victim to. Yeah. It's very hard to say, just go away. Just, yeah. you know, F off because I don't want to talk to you anymore. Because we're so well brought up. Yeah. You know, that's not how you treat people. Yeah. And you're also scared of being too rude because you don't want to anger the person and get mm. them, turn them mm. violent, which, which happened anyway, right? So you're con- your hands are tied because whichever mm. way you decide to behave, you could set the person off or they could always have had that intention to do it to you. So mm. I think that's why, you know, it annoys me when there's so much emphasis put on like a women or girls need to behave this way to prevent this from happening to them when, again, whatever you decide to do it it really is up to the perpetrator exactly you know? exactly you could do one thing and it be yeah. the wrong thing and the other thing's the wrong thing you just i mean you know and the fact is he'd probably already decided to do it no yeah. matter what you did right yeah. so yeah. so it was just going to play out yeah um and we talked about not going into too much detail so i don't think we will but you know it was a violent attack yeah. right yeah and um it lasted a, quite a while well you know a while and I don't know how, like I said, about the book, because the the way I read it in the book, I mean, it is an astounding read and everybody should read this book because it is, well, first of all, you're a fantastic writer, but also I've never read anything quite like this where a, a, an, an assault is described. And it's not a horrible read, but it's so compelling, the attack of, oh, my God, that could somebody is actually doing that to somebody. Mm. you know because it's just so um well it's hideous it's just hideous but what I wanted to ask you as that was happening and as it was finishing because you were actually scared for your life right you thought that you might die yeah I mean there had been quite a lot of violence before the actual uh, sexual part of the assault if that means uh, you know yeah Um, so you know he um yeah, I mean, he choked me and I couldn't breathe, right? Um, and if anyone's ever been in that situation where you can't breathe, it's just terrifying. <laughs> and you just want to do whatever you can to be able to breathe again. Um, mm. So, you know, I kind of made a quite conscious decision decision during that violent part of the assault that I was like, you know, what, I'm just going to do whatever he wants as long as it mm. means I'm going to live, right? Um, yeah. Which meant effectively saying yeah okay like these things that he was demanding sure fine you know if that's what it takes right and you know it's and I think that's for people that haven't been in that situation I think it's hard for them to really understand how it really is a it's a question of survival right um Mm. so I I remember you know before my own rape happened just thinking like oh yeah I'm you know I'm an empowered like liberated woman and if anything like that was ever going to happen to me like I would fight back right Um, and I did fight back right to some extent and then I just realized this person's way more physically violent than me and 
um, if I keep on doing this, mm. I'm probably either going to die or get brain damage or something, right? Because I, I, I yeah. you know, I just realized I, I totally understand that, though, that, that um, the survival instinct kicking in and yeah. doing whatever it takes yeah. to survive. Yeah. And um, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I think most people would do the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Given the circumstances. Yeah, and the other thing is a lot of, uh, you know, people always talk about, like, uh, flight or fight, but then there's also mm. freeze is the other response, which actually many people have the freeze response, right? Because that, you yeah. know, and that, unfortunately, you know, is sometimes is a situation where then people can do things to you when you freeze, right? But that still maybe was the best option to survive, right? right? So. Yeah. You know, for me, I did make the conscious decision to be like, okay, you know what, this this kid is super violent, and if he doesn't get what he wants, like, I, I literally may die. So, um, yeah, so there was kind of a, a decision for me to just let him have whatever he wants, yeah. um, which was just bizarre, right? Because then it kind of shifted into this scenario where, I mean, I don't know, clearly he'd seen a lot of porn films, so he was sort of demanding different things right um mm. and i was just like what is going on right you know oh um and at the moment and i you know i still and bear in mind we're outdoors it's yeah. a springtime afternoon you know we're obviously in a very remote area otherwise you know, saw it may not have happened and you know i just remember being like i don't, literally don't know what's going on like you know i'm on the ground in the mud and um yeah it was just um at the time obviously when it was happening you know the word rape hadn't wasn't occurring to me right it was just more like i don't know what the hell is going on this is completely surreal um and then it just kind of got to a point where because it wasn't so immediately physically violent it just he just sort of i think once he started having what he wanted he wasn't violent anymore and then it just kind of bizarrely sort of tapered off and then he started chatting to me, right? So it was just so bizarre. And oh actually, other other um, victims I've spoken to, other victims and survivors mm. who survived similar stranger assaults, um, are like, yeah, no, it is. There is that weird thing where it shifts from being like a very demanding, violent situation to the sale. Your perpetrator actually just chatting to you, almost as if they oh think God. that's a form of intimacy or something. I don't know, um, but it was. It was really weird. So then after mm. afterwards, he was chatting to me and I, I still remember thinking like, okay, I'm doing whatever I can to survive, but that means having a bizarre conversation with my perpetrator. Sure. I'll, you know, I'll humor him, but um, yeah, it's, and then eventually he just sort of left. Right. You know, um, so. Well, in, in the book, you said that uh, you wrote that you sat, you kind of sat down and had an apple. Yeah. Did that actually happen? Yeah, yeah, I had the apple. Oh <laughs> yeah, because I just was like, okay, in my mind, I'm thinking, what the what the hell just happened, right? Um, and mm. and he's standing around trying to have a conversation with me, and I I'm thinking again, just pretend everything's normal. Like, so the more you pretend things are normal, the less likely he's gonna think that you're freaked out and you're gonna report it to the police, right? And at the time, I still hadn't even thought right away I'm gonna report this to the police. It's just more like. He's clearly violent. So if we can bring him away from the violence, um, the less I resist and the more complicit he thinks I am, the less likely he is to get become violent again, right? So I was just like chatting to him. I was like, I have an apple. I'm going to eat an apple. I'm literally going to sit by the side of the trail, have an apple, drink some water. I offered him like some water and he was like, no, no, I'm all right. And then eventually I think he just got bored of the conversation and left. So... You know, and was was it your did you, I mean because 
there was no thought to, of yours to like, I'm just going to start running now or, or I mean, it had been done, hadn't it? So what else yeah, could you do? It had been done and there wasn't anywhere I could run to. Cause again, bear in mind, I, I hadn't been to this place before, right? I was, I was hiking it like in a, effectively a new city for me. I'd never been to this part of Belfast before and I'd never been on this trail before. Yeah. So I don't even know what the terrain around me was like, but I mean, clearly there was, you know, I, I knew we were in the middle of nowhere. I could hear a road somewhere, but I didn't know how far away it was. So, and it had, at the end of the day, like you said, it had been done. So, like, he did the worst mm. thing possible short of killing me. So I just wanted to, you know, move away from any situation where he would be tempted to commit some further kind of crime. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, if he wants to think we're just hanging out after we've had sex, right? Oh, Even though clearly yeah. it was a rape. Sure, let him think that, right? Um, wow. But it, it I mean, was it's funny, when I, when I read the book, I was I got this sense that that, eating of the apple was kind of so empowering really I don't know if it felt yeah I don't know if it felt like that for you at the time of like you were deciding to take some control and I'm going to flipping eat this apple um (laughs) that's how it felt reading it it was like taking back your control yeah maybe I think it was more of an attempt to try to be normal right or try to create a more normal situation so i mean i guess i sort of was hungry right so i was just like i'm just gonna eat this apple right um but and you know if i had been hiking on my own i might have sat down and had an apple so i think it's funny because a lot of people read into that apples like think quite a lot in the book and in the the dutch edition of the book right so because it's been it translates different um, languages the dutch edition like the apples on the cover right (laughs) yeah and so it's like a woman's face right and then there's this cutout of like the or anyway there's this outline of an apple right and i just remember thinking like that is so weird like what what is that apple about right because the apple's not a big detail in like for me in the grand scheme of things right and my agent at the time was like well of course it's the apple that she eats after the assault and i'm like oh yeah all right i forgot about that and she's like yeah i just found that like so symbolic and it was just you know it was like a reverse kind of snow white situation or it was kind of like you know the symbolism of the apple was it was like kind of apples of like the fall from the garden of evil, uh, you know and i was like oh that's quite funny that's quite funny that we've all read it into it and, <laughs> and you're like, like no i just ate an apple I'm like, it was just an apple but yeah <laughs> um but um yeah no so i ate the apple i mean and i guess that sort of bought me some time because i think he just got bored and then he left and that was ultimately what i wanted i just wanted him to like leave and so he just left like, yeah. he, like as in bye i'll see you kind of leaving i mean he was just kind of like i think i'll go now all right bye you know and and i think again for me it was very much i don't want to turn my back on this kid right so you asked me before like didn't i didn't occur to me to like run away and i remember thinking i mean of course the you know the first thing i wanted to do was like vacate the premises but i just didn't you know i didn't want to turn my back on him because i didn't know what he was going to do right because like he could turn violent again he could try to kill me or strangle me or what have you so it's like if i just plant myself down and refuse to leave he will leave at some point so that's what happened um yeah and then and Mm. only then did i allow myself to cry because only then was i like what the hell just happened Um, well because that must be the moment where you just start shaking and going oh my god oh my god oh my god yeah. Is that right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I like I still didn't use the word rape, you know, cuz again that's a word we never want to use in our heads to apply to our lives, but I was just like I yeah. literally don't know what the hell just happened. I somehow was forced to have sex with this complete stranger in the mud. Uh yeah, I I was just like 
completely numb with shock, right? And I, yeah. I, I was numb for sh- with shock for, you know, weeks after that, frankly, you know. Um, but I do remember thinking, okay, what am I going to do now? Because he's gone. So the immediate threat of this boy is gone. Um, so I, I could keep on hiking because that's what I set out to do. <laughs> and I'm a single-minded person and I, you know, I, I, I came out here to hike. Um, and part of me actually, I did really consider that because I, I really sort of just wanted to get on with, the trail and you know i find here's somebody that like find you know i find a great deal of pleasure and joy in being outdoors on my own right so i'm like well maybe i can still do that but then part of me was like i think you've been assaulted and need medical attention right um it was more about and it was kind of just like i knew like i'd been punched in the head you know my my throat hurt because where he'd strangled me so i kind of was like I probably need some medical attention. So I kind of, I finally decided like, listen, like don't continue to hike, just call a friend for help. Um, And, you know, and I say this and this is in the book and, you know, I've mentioned um, in a conversation, I'd I'd heard kind of a road somewhere in the distance. Um, So I remember thinking like, okay, I'm just going to walk to that road because uh, that somehow represented safety in some way, because at least mm. there were like other people there, although obviously not every person out there <laughs> looks out for your safety. But um, I was mm. like, okay, maybe I can get to that road and then I'll call a friend for help, right? Um, and, and that's what I ended up doing. So I ended up walking towards that road and on my way, because I was in sort of this wasteland, right? Like, the, you know, right. I didn't see anyone around. And so when I walked across that sort of wasteland, I was I called a friend um, who... Um, you know, answered right away, thankfully. And, and we just had a really, it was the most surreal conversation I've ever had. She said, Oh yeah, how's it going? I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I'm fine. Right. Um, cause we, I had just been at a series of different events in Northern Ireland and, and she was kind of the person who organized those events. So she was like, yeah, I'm just finishing up a few things related to, to these events. And, and she's like, uh, yeah, how are you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not doing too well. I think I've just been raped. So that was the first time I used that word because I remember thinking, okay, how do I convey in as few words as possible what just happened to me? And I'm like, I think the word is rape. So yeah, I was like, I I think I've just been raped. Um, And my friend Mary Lou was like, she was great. She was like, okay, where are you? Are you safe? Stay right there. Uh, I'm going to get the police. Uh, can you hold on while I get the police? And, and I'll talk, you know, and, you know, to this day, I think, you know, if I called someone who had a different reaction, things could have gone very yeah. differently. Because a lot and of... So, mm, you go on. No, well, I mean, a lot of victims, you know, that first person you tell, that first disclosure is so important, right? Because if that person is there and believes you right away and says, let's get you the help you need right away and let's move you, you know, let's call the police, then suddenly, like, it, it confirms the reality of what happened to you, Right. Um, whereas if you tell somebody and they're like, oh, you know, are you sure that happened? Or maybe you're imagining it or, you know, he seems like a nice guy. He wouldn't do something like that. You know, in all, those kinds of scenarios where it's, it's, it's not a stranger, right? Um, especially that often happens yeah. and that completely denies the reality of what happened to you. And people may end up, you know, a lot of victims end up burying what happened to them because of that reaction to the first disclosure. So yeah, that's, that's oh, really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I never really even thought about that. That's fascinating. And um, cuz I was thinking, did you think straight away I'm going to get the police? No. No, I wasn't I wasn't even thinking. I was still in just complete shock. So I think for yeah. me it was like I'm in shock. I need medical attention. I have no idea how to get that, so I'm just going to call a friend. Yeah. Um, and so it was your friend that uh 
straight away called the police yeah. for you. Yeah. And I mean, I later found out that she was raped as well, right? And she had been raped, you know, I think two or three years prior to that. Also by strangers, she'd been drugged. Um, so uh, in oh some ways, gosh. you know, as terrible as that sounds, I, I was... I was lucky in that that was somebody who believed me right away because she had been through it, right? Um, So, and and I didn't have to sit and explain everything to her because she, once she heard me say that, she called the police right away and got me the help I needed. Whereas somebody who maybe was a bit more disbelieving uh, may have just been like, oh, well, are you okay? You know, I mean, there's so many other ways it could have gone, I think. so. Yeah, that's so true. Like somebody else could have just said, oh, well, I'll come and get you and take you back to your hotel, I guess. And yeah. You can have a shower and we'll think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And that aftermath, I mean, it sounds pretty horrific in itself because once you have got the police involved and once you've gone to the hospital or whatever the process is, you end up having to be kind of violated all over again. Yeah, yeah. And, And I think that's kind of what most people don't think about when you've, when you've, been raped about how you have to cope with what comes next yeah I mean and it's it's really tough because on one hand of course we want victims reporting right and of course in the ideal world like every rape that happens would get reported to the police and get treated like a crime and the police would take it seriously and actually would look for the perpetrator and you know oftentimes that doesn't happen we you know the statistics are terrible, frankly, in terms of um, the criminal justice system. I think in England, like 6% of reported rapes result in a conviction. So it's, you know, those are reported rapes. And generally people say only one in 10 rapes is actually reported. So we're talking about like, you know, a huge yeah. amount of thing, rapes, uh, crimes that occur and only yeah. a fraction of them that result in a conviction. Um, and I know, obviously, since I pretty much work as an activist now on this issue, uh, quite a few victims and survivors that did report to the police and the case was dropped or the case never was really followed through. And, um, you know, it's just shocking because, you know, as a victim, you're counting on the law or, you know, the systems around Mm -hmm. us to try to see justice done. And a lot of times that doesn't happen Um, for a whole number of different reasons, oftentimes because the police think there's not enough evidence. Um, You know, it's so it's, it's it is really tough, and then what really annoys me is when that that standard thing of like, oh, she's just making it up, or you know, can does she, has she really been raped? You know, these are all false accusations. Um, yeah. And you know, nobody would go through that trouble. Right? Nobody got the trouble of going to the police and like going through that like the entire horrible exam to get evidence off your body if it hadn't actually happened, right? So I mean, yeah. that's what really really annoys me when people that don't really have any familiarity with the criminal justice system are just saying like, oh, you know, women just make this up, you know, and, you know, this woman's yeah. just lying, you know, to get back at some guy, right? Um, like, it, it is not a pleasant experience to have to yeah. go through that exam where literally your body's being scraped inside and out for evidence. Um, and, you know, in my case, they got the DNA evidence because I, you know, contacted the police right away or my friend contacted the police right away. So kind of immediately... Yeah you know, they found DNA on me that was a partial match to someone in his family, right? So that was all evidence that, that kind of helped lead towards the conviction of my perpetrator. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty bad. Like, I, you know, I would not wish that kind of experience on anyone after after the, the initial assaults, then you just have that violation of your body again, um, just but in I, the name of justice, really. But that's, isn't that the only way that it's going to 
work because you have otherwise it's just his word against your word yeah yeah so you you needed that evidence so you have to go through that but it takes an awful amount of strength having just been through an assault to then go back and be violated again in the name of the law yeah i mean at the end of the day though just because they find dna on you doesn't mean that doesn't prove that no consent was given right you know so somebody could immediately say like oh yeah yeah, well she just had sex in the woods with a stranger yeah. Right? And then yeah, yeah, with somebody half my age right you know but like that's you know that, so that that's evidence that there was sexual intercourse or you know there, there was like mm. sexual activity but that it's not evidence that it wasn't consent what did help was the fact i had 39 separate injuries so i had a lot of bruises and scrapes on me and that was all documented by the police um so lots of photographs being taken of my body afterwards mm. um which was also just weird but that was you know in a bizarre way it's like your body no longer belongs to you a, because of the rape, because someone's done that to you, but then B, because suddenly your body becomes literally a body of evidence for for the criminal justice system. Um, yeah. And that comes up again in, in the trial scene in, in my book, just how, you know, that no, you feel like you no longer have control over these things, right? Because suddenly the law mm. takes over and everything, you know, hairs on your head become evidence, right? So um, it was a very weird thing to have to go through the assault to begin with and then suddenly just to have my whole life being taken over by the criminal justice process which I had no control over right and things weren't being explained to me uh I, I was dependent on this one police officer who was great he's great I'm still in touch with Stuart but I was dependent on this one detective who would just update me on what was happening with the search for my perpetrator but it was just a, a really weird process and you're just like what has my life turned into um well this is it I mean this is the thing that I I can't remember where, yep, I heard you describe describe it about crossing a line. Yeah. That that day you're, you you crossed over a line your, and your life was divided from the person you used to be and the life you used to have. You crossed that line and suddenly you're in this new life. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, that described it very well for me because it was like, oh, yeah, it wasn't just the assault that happened. Her whole life has now been altered. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, and I think it's people don't really quite realize how long lasting the impact is, right? Because uh, yeah, the assault itself is terrible, uh, but then there's the psychological impact of that, right? So I had severe post traumatic stress disorder, which meant you know flashbacks and panic attacks, um, like all the time. I had agoraphobia, so I you know I couldn't step out of my apartment without freaking out. Mm. Um, just if I passed anyone that vaguely resembled my perpetrator that would freak me out if I passed other teenage boys that would freak me out um and you know even walking near a park I couldn't do that anymore in the middle of the day because that would remind me of of the circumstances around my rape so you know again we spoke about how I you know was somebody who traveled around the world on my own and was really really into traveling on my own and suddenly to be reduced from that to this kind of shriveled shell of a human being, which is what I felt I was, that was in some ways the worst kind of form of destruction, right, um, to myself. Mm. So, and to have had no control over that happening, right, simply because the actions of this one other person, this complete, this kid, this complete stranger decided to do that to me, and suddenly my life is this now, right? So that's the injustice of of any kind of crime, but particularly Mm. with criminal, with sexual assault, because the PTSD and the shame can be really bad. Um, and then 
I wasn't, so I wasn't really able to function in the same way. Like I couldn't go to the pub and meet with friends or I couldn't, you know, go to a social scenario and not break down crying. Um, so like my entire life as I knew it was completely sort of erased, which affected my job, you know, that affected my ability to perform in my job. And I I used to work as a film producer at the time, um, which is a very demanding job. And I was just like, I I can't, I can't do this. You know, I can't be trying to move a film towards production if I am having flashbacks and panic attacks the entire time. So I basically, you know, had to leave my job and I, I never was able to go back to film producing, right? Um, yeah. You know, that's what the industry's like. Like if you're out yeah. for a while, if you're out of the loop, it's hard to get back in. So I effectively, I lost my career as a film producer because of this kid that decided to do this to me that afternoon, right? Um, you know, if I wanted, now I could probably go back if I wanted, but obviously things have changed in my life and, I'm no longer really interested in that kind of career, but yeah. you know, it, it wasn't fair to me. I didn't make that conscious decision to, you know, say like, Hey, I don't want to work in this industry anymore. It was kind of forced upon me. Yeah. Um, and then if you lose your job, well, you lose your income, right? Um, and if you lose your income, you lose the yeah. ability to do all the things you wanted to do, like, you know, go out to spend money in a certain kind of way. So yeah, um, yeah I became, I went from being a very, sort of I suppose capable liberated person to feeling like you know I'm a complete shell shriveled shell of a human being and I can't do anything I used to be able to do you know obviously I couldn't travel on my own again I couldn't hike um so it was and that so that would have been the immediate few years afterwards not to mention the criminal justice process is terrifying for a victim so um and what about you mentioned the word shame and I mm -hmm. I, that interests me because it's like what did you feel shame about what had happened i felt yeah i mean i think it's impossible not to feel some kind of shame about that although intellectually i knew i shouldn't be ashamed of what had happened to me because it wasn't my fault right but like Mm. i said you know for a while there was like i could have avoided this somehow why did i decide to go on that hike i could have turned around when this kid was being weird so there's any number of things where i was just like i I should have been able to avoid that somehow and you know thankfully i had like great police officers and great friends who were like no actually like you know it it happened because this kid decided to do that to you right and so eventually when i reached that point i was like okay I'm, i'm not i suppose I wasn't so much ashamed of what that person had done to me, although it's completely understandable why one would still be, but I was ashamed of what I had become, which was no longer capable, right? And this kind of, you know, sort of waste of space. Like, I felt like I was a complete ghost of my, you know, um, yeah, yeah, my life wasn't the same. I was afraid, ashamed of the fact that I couldn't leave my apartment or I couldn't actually, like, operate in a social scenario anymore, you know, so those sorts of things the way that and my life about, reduced yeah yeah and what about your um in in the book you didn't tell your parents yeah is that true in real life too? yeah yeah I, I didn't tell my parents for a long time I mean they know now but um yeah I mean to put things in context my parents were living in California they still live there and, and I live in London so you know mm. there was uh, quite a lot of geographic distance between us anyway. And I I basically just knew that if I told my parents, they would completely freak out yeah. and be really sad. And on some level they might, because parents sometimes do this, say like, you know, how did you let this happen to you? Right. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I didn't really want to have to deal with that. Right. Um, and I also didn't want to have to deal with their 
they're freaking out you know because they probably would have been like oh come back and live with us and like i, I didn't yeah, want to yeah, that wasn't my life my life was in london so um again it was sort of a rational decision to be like if i tell them it's probably going to cause more immediate damage than good because uh you know what how what can they actually do for me if they're thousands of miles away right um mm. So, uh, yeah, versus them freaking out, me having to deal with, like, kind of the emotional fallout of them knowing. So, yeah, I sort of hid it from them for a number of years. And it was only until, I'd say, three and a half years later that I told them, um, when I first started writing about it, and I had an essay about the assault um, published in the book, in a book collection. So I gave that to my parents for Christmas. And said, <laughs> oh, my God, for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm like, I was kind of like, well there's something I didn't really tell you about that happened to me a few years ago. Um, but at least I'm a published author now. Right? You know? um, but also I wanted to tell them when I had recovered somewhat. So by that point yeah. I, you know, I had a new job and I was rebuilding my life somewhat. So I kind of knew they wouldn't be as sad because at least oh. they could see me now and know that, you know, I'd kind of managed to put my life together back, uh, back together a bit. So. Oh my gosh. So did they just think you'd gone off the rails? Like why is she? I mean, I, I don't think so, because, like, you know, there was this whole weird charade I did where, you know, I was still able to talk on the phone with them, right, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's different if, if, you know, you have parents that you see every day, right, or, you know, yeah. every week. Like, they probably would be able to notice that there's a change, but... Oh, yeah, I think, okay. Yeah. Um, and same thing, like, I, you know, I wasn't on Facebook for, like, a number of months, and some of my friends were like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while, like, what happened, right? Um, yeah. So I, I did decide quite soon after the assault that I was going to tell a number of my friends just because I'm like, I, I can't try to hide this from them. And if, mm. you know, I need support from my friends, so I'm not going to try to pretend everything's fine when my life is falling apart. So, yeah, I mean, I just asked about your parents because I think I, I would feel like I just want to go and curl up and have people just look after me. Like, like when I was a child, mm. I'd feel like I'd want to go back to being a child. Yeah. And so when I read your book, I was quite impressed that you didn't tell your parents because I thought that's it definitely all the reasons you say are the right things to do. You, there's no point telling them in a way it's only going to upset them and all of that is the rational stuff. But in my heart, I was going, oh, I'd just go home. I'd, I just want to go and be a child and be looked after again. Yeah, no, and that that would have been nice, right? But um, <laughs> I also know my mom well enough to know that it would cause her like extreme pain, right? And yeah. that kind of pampering or the mothering that you you would want to have in that situation, I don't know if I necessarily would be able to get that from her because she'd be in so much pain herself, right? So um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it was a very, it was very kind of you to to acknowledge that and go, you know, I, I, I and also that you know that you were strong enough to cope with it yourself. Well, I didn't know if I, I mean, I certainly didn't feel at the time I was strong enough to cope with it myself, but I think it was, um, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, some of it might also be, you know, I'm, I'm Chinese or of, of Chinese extraction, right? And so my, mm. my parents are Chinese, Taiwanese, well, really Taiwanese, but ethnically Chinese. Um, so, you know, there is a slight difference in kind of filial relations, I suppose, with, with your parents, mm -hmm. if, if, you're, if, you're, okay. if you're Asian, right? So interestingly enough, like most of my my Asian friends, um, when I tell them, like, you know, oh, I didn't tell my parents afterwards, they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, of course, you know, I would tell my parents <laughs> either, right? Um, okay. You know, so, um, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny because I told um... – I talked about this with my husband because I was like, you know, she didn't tell her parents. And I just, you know, it was a sticking point for me. I was trying to work it out in my head. And he said, oh, I get that. 
I get that why you wouldn't tell your parents because it was sexual as well. Mm, so why yeah. and and you you don't discuss that with your parents. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. Yeah, fine. and you're right. I suppose if I'd been mugged or something, I probably mm. would have told my parents. But yeah, I think it was the sexual element of as well that just mm. made it just too weird to tell my parents. You know, and like I'm not advocating that necessarily is the best thing to do for no. any victim out there. I mean, any victim has a different way of reacting to what happened, a different way of dealing with it, and and a different relationship with their parents, right? Um, and if it yeah. had happened to me when I was 19 as opposed to 29, I might have told them. I probably would have told right. them, right? You know, yeah. but I think for me, I was 29. I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty much an adult at this point or at the time I felt like I was, right? Um, I, mean, I, guess, you know. I guess that's the thing with these sort of crimes as well is that everyone is different. Yeah. Every every single person is different. Every, every perpetrator is different. Every situation is different. All of that. So I guess that's partly why it's so difficult. Mm. Um, you know, for the justice system as well as for society to go, this is how we're going to cope with this, this is how we're going to deal with this, this is how we're going to look after these people or rehabilitate these people Yeah, because it's such a variety of, of events. Yeah, and at, at the same time, like, you know, rape is something that, you know, we see in movies and TV a lot, right? It's it's mm. in, like, you know, it's in the Bible, it's in, you know, a lot, most storytelling that you can imagine, like most bodies of literature out there, like rape is in there. So... In, in a bizarre way, it's told a lot, you know, you hear a lot of stories about it and you see a lot of representations of rape, but they're not all necessarily true to what happens in every different instance, right? So uh, mm. oftentimes, I mean, let, let's be honest, a lot of the stuff that's out there is written by men as well, right? Who probably haven't been yeah. through the experience, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, so like I've had people react or, you know, when I read comments about my book or people will be like well I, I didn't really believe it because I didn't you know I don't believe that this this woman would have like emailed her friends afterwards and said that she'd been raped you know that to me that that's completely inauthentic right um and you're like well I did that I, did. <laughs> you know, I mean that's how I chose to react to it right yeah I, and like another person might be more ashamed to want to keep completely quiet about that you know and that that mm. is their reaction but you know it's not so it's not anyone's place to say like this is not real i don't believe this because i don't believe mm. that a rape victim would act that way because you know people react in all sorts of ways to this kind of trauma and there's no one way to react to it so that's right yeah and so when you um you know you, it's happened it's your life as you knew it before was over how do you start to rebuild how did you do that um, I, you know, I definitely remember there were times when I was like, you know, my life is, I'm never going to get that life back again. And, and I think that was what made me so sad. The fact that I'm like, I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to travel on my own again, because I can't even leave my flat. Um, and it was just that sense of loss that was the hardest mm. thing. And, and that, you know, I was, aside from the PTSD, I also had, you know, anxiety, um, just because, you know, I'd been raped by a 15-year-old boy, like, what are other people capable of? Um, and a lot of depression. Yeah. You know, the depression was about that yeah. loss of my life and the fact that I was no longer capable of doing the things I'd wanted to do. Um, so that lasted for years, really, you know. Um, and I guess for me, you know, there was the criminal justice process. Um, and that you know for i'd say about a year of my life was taken over by that process right because mm. i was very dependent on like well what's happening next what's that you know have they caught the guy now that the guy's yeah. caught like what's happening with him and there's a whole bunch of like different bureaucratic like you know like um, 
actions that happen um, yeah. in terms of like different forms of hearings and whatever that like I, I don't really understand right um, but this police officer kept on updating me on what was happening and then all I knew was that at some point there was going to be a trial and that was going to be in March so it was about like 11 months after the assault um, so from October onwards I was just very conscious of the fact that like shit at some point I'm gonna have to sit in the same room as this guy and testify in front of him about what he did to me um and that was completely terrifying that thought Mm. um because for any victim you know you don't want to have to think about your perpetrator like any reminder of your perpetrator brings back you know fear so to think about having to be in the same room as him and then also be you know kind of articulate and talk about what had happened to me in front of him you know when being questioned by other strangers was just it was horrifying um so i wasn't really able to enjoy any aspect of my life um prior to the trial and just remember like Mm -hmm. as the days got closer and closer i was just like uh, living in a constant state of kind of anxiety um Mm -hmm. and just i just wanted to you know vomit the entire time right because the nausea was Mm -hmm. that overwhelming um i ended up flying over to belfast for the trial and then um again i was lucky enough i had a good friend of mine flew with me and uh another good friend of mine like joined us as well um and uh, and Mary Lou, um, the woman I called, yeah. she also they they flew her back from the states because she was actually American. Um, to, because she was the first witness, right? She was the first person mm. that had I'd spoken to, so she yeah. was going to be a witness as well. Um, and the morning of the trial, I was sitting in um in the witness room and I was kind of waiting for the jury to be selected, and then the prosecuting barristers came in and they said, oh, well, there's been a change um, and uh, he will agree to plead guilty if you'll agree to reduce the counts that he's charged with. And I remember thinking, like, what does that mean? Because <laughs> right? it was just like so yeah, legal yeah. what he said. And I was like, wait, does that mean if he pleads guilty, like there's not going to be a trial? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, so that means I don't have to testify? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, yeah, of course. Like, I'm not gonna like, you know, I wanted to avoid having to testify, obviously. Yeah. You know, so it kind of again, everything changed quite quickly because it went from me absolutely dreading this upcoming process and thinking like I'm never going to survive, just the panic and, and the anxiety of this, to thinking, wait a second, suddenly I don't have to do this, and he's pleading guilty. So everything I've been working towards and fearing <sighs> suddenly is like no longer has to happen. So. Um, it was a weird, it was quite anticlimactic and just really weird to be like, oh, okay, so now I guess that's over. <laughs> um, but also kind of annoying of yeah. him. He could have said that months ago and then you wouldn't have had to have all that months of worry. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, he could have pleaded oh. guilty at any point after his arrest or, you know, before his arrest, frankly, and and then he didn't. He chose to do it the morning of the trial. And, I mean, from what I was told later on, like, that's a familiar mm. tactic because a lot you know the defense will bank on the fact that the victim doesn't want to show up and testify because of the fear which i completely understand not wanting to do that so they'll wait until the very last minute hoping that she's not going to show up um but i did and i guess that's why he decided to plead guilty and if you hadn't have shown up he would have got away with it yeah yeah Right. I mean, so that's why they yeah, I mean, there was a possibility the trial could have gone ahead without my evidence. And maybe there, in this case, maybe there was enough evidence um, ready to right, convict okay. him because there was photographs. But, but, his, yeah. yeah, but his story would have got a lot 
stronger. Yeah, I mean, it's a much weaker case if the victim mm. doesn't testify. And that's kind of what's so difficult about the criminal justice process for, for victims of sexual assault, because, you know, your story, your evidence, you know, that is the strongest piece of evidence about what had happened. And yet the very act of having to provide the evidence in court is terrifying. Mm. Um, but they've since changed things a bit. So oftentimes, um, uh, like, for example, if, if a victim calls up the sexual assault referral center and says this happened to me, they will record her saying what happens, you know, when she's in the sexual assault referral center. And that's often used as evidence now in, in court. So she doesn't actually have oh. to be in the courtroom. Um, that's good. Which is good. Oftentimes, I think a lot of um, prosecutors think that is less strong evidence for whatever yeah. reason. Because the strongest evidence is the victim that goes up there and tells her story in plain view of everyone. But that is yeah. really, really tough on the victim. And I don't yeah. really think it's necessary, you know, that how is that stronger evidence than something that she said at the time? You know, so it's... It's funny. It's funny because I even have a problem with the word you know, because you say, you know, what's her story? You know, what she she can tell her story, but the word story almost implies that it's made up. Yeah. Like yeah. we need to change the language that it's her version of events. I mean, I, I guess that's what they do say in court, but you know, even in uh, the way we articulate it, yeah. it's not her story; it's what happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, that's a criminal justice system. Like you, they mm. you have to give criminals a chance to defend themselves i mean the really annoying thing when speaking about language is that the technical term for the victim is the person who brings the, the complaint so she's called the complainant you know so i was actually called the complainant um in, in this case it's like oh she's complaining yeah. oh not her again she's a complainer yeah so oh it's yeah it's i mean there's a lot about language that, that definitely can be changed around these issues um but yeah, yeah. So for me I, I wasn't really able to move on and recover from anything until that whole process was over and again thankfully in my mm. case there was a, a conviction and that it's quite rare as we know um and at least when there was a conviction, I was like, you know, I can draw a line under this and say, like, you know, I did everything I could uh, towards justice being served, and it was served, mm -hmm. and now I can move on with my life. And and was that true? Because people always say that, like, we can move on now, it's done, it's everything. And is that how it actually is? Well, yes and no, because, like, yeah, yeah I was able to move away from the criminal justice process. Uh, of my, of that was taking up my entire life, but it's not okay. like I suddenly was recovered, right? So that was what was really tough for me. I was like, oh, well, this is, this is over, and, like, you know, I had the best possible outcome, and now I still have to rebuild my life, right? And I yeah. was completely bereft because I, I didn't have a job anymore, um, I, so I wasn't really earning money and um fine like i still had good friends but i was just like well what what am i gonna do right so mm. it was so i was still depressed for a number of years after that because it was a while before i was able to find another job so i was just kind of like um so i mean thankfully for me i was just kind of like you know what like i want to go traveling again on my own <laughs> right? really so wow. it's hard for me to look back on that now and figure out how I managed to do that because I was like wait I went backpacking around the world on my own a year and a half after the assault like what the hell was I thinking but I wow. yeah I just remember thinking like I just want to travel so um and bear in mind I had actually tried traveling and I had traveled on my own between the assault happening and the trial and that's how crazy it was because I was still like no 
I don't, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to lose this because of what this kid did to me. I'm going to travel on my own. And I, I did a few trips and I just was like too terrified to enjoy it. Right. I mean, I oh, really? Was, so you, so you did it, but, but you couldn't enjoy it because of you, your fear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still saw like, so for example, like, you know, Ryanair had some super cheap flight to the South of France. Right. And so oh. pre attack Winnie would have been like, I'm booking it. I'm going. Right. So I was like, yeah. I'm going to do that, right? Um, this okay. is before I fully... So it was like your version of I'm going to feel the fear but do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, okay. I think this was before I fully realised the impact of the PTSD. So I was like, no, I'm doing it. So I booked this flight and then I just remember thinking, like, I am freaking terrified, right, of going on this uh, trip on my own. And then I went and I'm in the south of France and I, it was like, you know, it was October, so it was sort of the off-season and I booked this room in a pension and I got there and, and the pension owner was like, oh, well, we're actually going on holiday. So we're, we're closing down the pension. I mean, but obviously here's the key and you can stay here for two days. And, and there's like, oh, and there's one other guest staying here. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Right. So I was like, I'm staying in a pension oh in France on my own. There's one other person in the pension. And I never saw that person, but I heard that person. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, I, 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 that's awful. Yeah. So, I mean, before I went to bed, I would like push the furniture in front of the door like literally like I can't believe I'm doing this um so it was kind of crazy to think like what the hell was I thinking and then I went to the uh, but I still saw like you know the Pont du Gard Mm -hmm. near Nîmes I'd always wanted to see that and I was like I'm gonna go see that and I went and it was beautiful and I'm still glad I went but I was just like uh, you know this is too scary for me right I just can't you know um so I think I sort of was like, you know, I'm not going to travel until get, until after after mm. you know, this whole process is over. But two days after, so I flew back to Belfast for the sentencing hearing, right? So mm. basically he, he pleaded guilty. And then six weeks later, they're like, well, you know, he's going to get sentenced by the judge. Do you want to come over for this? And I'm like, yeah. Um, they're like, you don't have to, but I'm like, no, I want, I'm seeing this thing through. Right. You know? So, and I, that was just, you know, I'm quite resolute about things. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to see this entire thing through. So I flew over and I'm really glad I did it again because again, a friend flew with me and it it was just, again, drawing the final line or the nail in the coffin being like, okay, this has happened. But, you know, I sat in the same room as him. And I was in the same row as his family. And that was also weird. Yeah. Um, But, you know, um, once that happened, you know, my friend and I flew back and, you know, we bought half a bottle of champagne, like the the cheap EasyJet champagne on the flight back. And like, we were pretty drunk by the end of the flight. But, you know, we were like, I was like, yeah, no, this is over. Like, I've I've, I've drawn a line under that. You've done it. You Um, did it. And he got sentenced to how, how many years? uh eight years but he served four so um again in northern ireland well a lot of rape uh rapists don't full serve their whole sentence i think there's some shocking statistic in england it's mm. like two years that they tend to serve in prison so um and did you feel like that was enough um no not really i mean like you know yeah. eight was a pretty heavy sentence to be honest uh especially given he was so young um mm. he served for partly because in northern ireland there's this thing called 50 percent remission at the time so because there had been so many political prisoners uh sentences are actually cut in half so i was okay. like well all right that's not really strikes me as fair if he was sentenced to eight and he's only serving four but you know at the end of the day i had to kind of realize and, and, you know if i look at how much that that impacted my life it's not like four years after the assault my life was fine right you know I was still feeling the effects for a very long time well that's what I was going to say because I read somewhere that it took you about four years to recover you know or or to feel that you were getting back to where yeah 
you could be. Yeah, and I mean, and if you think about it, many other victims, it's, it takes a very long time, right? So it's yeah. it's just such a weird process because you can't really say like it takes x number of years to recover and therefore x number of years that that person needs to serve in prison so at some point i just decide to tell myself like you know what like i can't live the rest of my life hinged upon what's happening to this other person right because i could get really worked up if i want that he hasn't served a long enough sentence but at the end of the day you know i'm one of very few victims that's had the conviction of their perpetrator um i'm not saying that like i should just be happy with that but at the end of the day like you know i know so many other victims that don't have that so like i just need to focus on my own life and recovering right because it you know and again because it was a stranger rape it was easy to just make that separation because i'm never going to see that person again whereas if it's someone in your family that assaulted you or if somebody in your friend circle it's a bit harder yeah i can understand but with your with your um perpetrator he's out now yeah yeah and does that worry you because it was you that put him in prison yeah and he might be angry at you for that yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, and then to be honest, it wasn't over actually once he got put into prison because what ended up happening was he he violated his probation. So he he served. Um, well, he was basically in 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 remand for a year prior to the trial, and then he served three more years, and then he was out on probation. Um, and then when he was on probation, he he violated that and he went missing. Right. So basically, he he went on the run. Um, and I didn't know at the time because I was by that point I'd moved countries. I was living in the Middle East and eventually I moved to Singapore for a bit. And I got a phone call from a journalist in Northern Ireland uh, who I didn't know, but it was once I heard the Northern Irish accent, I was like, "What is going on?" Uh, and they wanted a comment from me because he got on the run, right? So it wasn't oh. over, and I was just like, "What the hell?" Like, you know, I was just like, "Can this person just stay in prison, right?" Um, <laughs> or just follow the rules. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I was just like so the last thing I wanted when I was you know in the middle of putting my life together was suddenly be reminded of this other person that had effectively ruined my life um for a while so um yeah it wasn't over in that sense and I, and I guess for a lot of victims it's an, it's not over because there's always the potential that something some reminder can bring all the trauma and the pain back you know um but as you know mm. for me I found you know as the years go by you know I've put distance more distance between me and that, yeah. that event so um I, but I was yeah I mean I wasn't feeling great about the fact that he was on the run right at the time I was living quite far away so I'm like okay realistically he's not going to come to Singapore right or like yeah. Qatar and hunt me down but eventually I did make the decision to move back to London um because I realized I finally wanted to write the book about mm. this um and uh, so I enrolled in the creative writing course in the master's program at Goldsmiths um and I started writing the book and I remember thinking like do I want to move back to London because that's a lot closer to where that person is now. Um, and then eventually I was like, you know what, again, I can't live the rest of my life based on the whereabouts of this other yeah, person. Yeah, good. I'm glad you made that decision because if you hadn't, that would have him be still having power yeah. over you. Yeah, exactly. You know, And so at every step of the whole process afterwards of like going public about it, writing the book, promoting the book, going back to Northern Ireland, I, I had to be like, okay, yeah, there's a chance I might run into this person again, but... Mm. I don't think I'm going to get raped again by him, right? You know, right. Or, but like, I'm not going to let that fear, 
you know, stop me yeah. from doing it. Um, so, you know, I, I had to go back to Belfast to do research for the novel. And I was just terrified at the thought of going back, right? Because, you know, in yeah. the intervening years, just have hearing a Northern Irish accent would make me quite nauseous because it would automatically remind me of the trial and everything around that. And so, you know, I mean, which is too bad for people that were Northern Irish, I happened to me because I would just be like, oh my God, I can't hear your voice, right? Um, so, I mean, for a while, I was just like, I, I don't want to go back. And then I was like, I have to go back if I want to write this book. Um, so I well, was, yeah. Go, go, going on to your book, the, I mean, the fascinating thing about it is that half of it's written from the perpetrator's perspective. Yeah. Which to, when you when you say that, it sounds like, what? How how has she found it in herself to give this person a voice? Um, so that's not a question, but it is, it is like, how did you find the empathy for, for him to give him a voice in your book? Um, I, I, it was kind of a challenge I set out for myself. Um, you know, I think, Quite early on, I knew I wanted to write a book about it, just because, you know, I'm a writer. Fine. I hadn't been published prior to the assaults, um, or in a major way, but I, I knew, you know, writing is my default way of self-expression, right, as, as a creative. So, like, yeah. writing is what I do to just deal with life, right? So I kind of knew, okay, right, I knew shortly after the assault, I was like, no, I, I'm going to write about this someday. I'm going to turn this into a book. Um, I knew I wasn't ready at the time because, you know, I was too traumatized, mm. but quite early on I remember thinking his life is so different from mine right and like you know during this podcast we've spoken about my life and I love to travel and all this kind of thing and I used mm. to work in the film industry and you know I, I have a, a good education because I went to like very prestigious university and like that buys me certain kinds of privileges right um mm. and a certain kind of outlook on life and a certain kind of confidence in, in terms of moving around the world and mm. if you don't have the benefit of that kind of education or for class reasons uh, you don't have that kind of confidence um, that people are going to take you seriously. Um, and if maybe you haven't traveled around the world and been able to form an opinion about the world in a certain way, you know, what what does that do to your outlook? Mm. And if people treat you a certain way because of because of the community that you belong to, and he was an Irish traveler, and, you know, there's a lot of prejudice against Irish travelers in Ireland. Um, how does that affect the way you see the world, right? If if you're constantly getting, you know, if you're constantly on the receiving end of different kinds of, you know, prejudice, right? Um, so not that any of that is an excuse for his behavior, right? But I mean, I just remember thinking, like, here's somebody with a very different life from mine, and isn't it bizarre and obviously quite tragic that our lives crossed in that mm. moment of violence and that our lives will never be the same afterwards because of what happened then, uh, more specifically because of his decision to rape me. Um, yeah. So some of it was me attempting to make sense of that decision and trying to place it in a life that I was very unfamiliar with, but in a life that I could maybe try to understand how he had come yeah. about behaving like that and thinking about women in a certain way or thinking about, yeah. you know, outside. It's fascinating because it's the the way, yeah, the way you described in the book about how he's brought up and how he and his family and his brother and his dad talk about women and his mm. friends talk about women. Um, I thought that was fascinating and, and definitely um, throws up so many questions about how, how, how we need to raise our boys yeah and um 
I thought that was really insightful of you to write about that. And, and, and also I thought it was incredibly kind of you because you kind of gave him not an excuse because there's no excuse, but you gave an understanding yeah. of maybe that's how he ended up that way. Yeah, because, you know, if he had been born into different circumstances, and this isn't about being an Irish traveller or not, if he'd been born into, you know, a, 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 a different family even, right? Mm, um, yeah. Or, you know, hadn't had an older brother, you know, or, so, or any kind of other yeah. sorts of circumstances that could have happened. Like, maybe he wouldn't have become a rapist yeah. by the age of 15, right? You know, I mean, nobody is born to be a rapist, right? You know, I mean, people, like, mm-hmm. kids are born, you know, I have a baby boy now, and I mean, God, who knows what he's going to grow up to be like. But, you know, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. like, people grow up into certain kinds of personalities and in certain kinds of like behaviors and roles because of what surrounds them so um i guess it was kind of my way of saying that yeah of course this one individual is responsible for what happened but like a society we're responsible for individuals thinking that they could do this to women and to girls and get away with it yeah and was it a cathartic thing for you to do like to to write the novel did it you did you found it like a healing process for you Yes and no. I mean, I, I get asked that question a lot. Like for me, I pretty much had to heal and recover before I could be in a place to write the novel. So because I knew it was going to be like a pretty huge undertaking kind of artistically and then also, you know, certainly emotionally to write the novel. I was like, you know, I'm just going to focus on rebuilding my career. Um, so I kind of had five years, five and a half years of, you know, found another job, left the country, like, mm. you know, earned a decent chunk of money that I felt like, so I felt like financially stable. Um, and, and then I was like, okay, I'm coming back to London. I'm going to do this course so I can write the novel. Um, so by the time I started writing the novel, I probably, you know, I'd already done most of the rebuilding of my life. Um, right. and so I didn't really need to heal in such an immediate way, but I suppose writing the novel allowed me to kind of transform like what was a terrible experience um, into something more meaningful, right? So yeah. turning it into literature effectively and, you know, the book mm-hmm. that allowed me to then, you know, meet people like you and have important conversations yeah. around these issues. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, I suppose that you can say it was empowering um, and in, in that way it was healing, but it, it wasn't really quite... Because, yeah, it wasn't a catharsis in the sense that, like, there was one moment and everything was, like, you know, fine after that. It was just, because writing a novel, I mean, it's a lot of work and it's, like, a, it's a constant process and, like, for a while, yeah. like, it's never going to be finished. And even when it's published, you still have all the work of promoting it and getting it out there. And so it kind of feels endless in some ways, right? Um, yeah. So there's never one moment where I'm like, oh, I'm done with it. But I suppose now, I mean, it's now just 12 years since the assault, I definitely feel like, you know, I've healed, right? Um, yeah. and, and the book is out there and people are reading it and it's still nice to have conversations about it. Um, mm. But I no longer feel like, you know, my particular trauma about rape is something I need to be constantly addressing every day. Yeah. Cause... I mean, it's funny though, because the book, I think, like you said, it's out there, people are reading it and it's it's sort of spreading the word in a way, like the Me Too movement mm. is as well. Um, but one thing that I've noticed throughout this podcast series is that a lot of the episodes are about something traumatic or negative that happened and the positives that come out of it. So while something really bad happened, there's always lightness to be found. Yeah. And I certainly think in your your case, 
you know, not only have you written this book, but you're now running a festival, you're, you're uh, supporting other victims, you're doing endless work to, um, to spread the word and to help other people. So you got to feel good about that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And it's, I mean, it can be quite exhausting and emotionally draining, um, but because we're talking, you know, about really, really heavy issues of trauma here. Mm. But at the same time, you know, there is uh, sort of an incredible kind of connection that you feel, a human connection when you meet other survivors. Because mm. uh, we've all been through this horrible thing and we all sort of kind of understand, even though, again, every situation is different, every rape is different, every reaction is different there is that kind of shared experience of of having been sexually violated and having to deal with that and having to figure out a way to put your life back together afterwards. Um, So yeah, uh, you know, and every time I speak, I mean, now we're in lockdown, but for, I feel like about two and a half, three years, all I was doing was like public speaking around this. Every time I speak, like somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, it happened to me too. And that, that is unfortunately how common sexual abuse and assault is but it is that just need that need to be recognized and that need for your experience to be validated and to connect with another person that's been through that which has you know been incredibly Mm. meaningful um and so has the me too movement been something that you've been blown away by or did you see it coming or um I don't know. I mean, I don't think I saw it coming in the exact form it took, right? In terms of like the Weinstein allegation and then like hashtag me too and then time's up and all that, you know, I mean, but you know, I've certainly been following the issue of sexual assault and rape in the media for a very long time, partly because my own rape was so widely reported in the media. So, I mean, for anyone that reads my novel, it's, you know, pretty much from the day that my rape happened, it was in the news in Northern Ireland. Um, and two days mm. after my assault, I was back in my flat in London and I was just, I Googled my rape, right? Because <laughs> that's what you do in the 21st century. Oh my God. And I just saw all these news reports about my rape. Yeah. Right? And it was just really, really weird and surreal to be like, oh, like there's all these other people talking about my rape and they have no idea that it's me. Um, and I remember listening to a radio chat show um, like the most listened to radio chat show in Northern Ireland, the Stephen Nolan show, where they were there was like a half hour conversation about my rape and like what did it mean? Was Belfast still a safe city if this can still happen? Right. Um, so it was just very bizarre to be witnessing other people talking about my rape. That would have been super surreal. Yeah. That it was about you. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, at the same time, it wasn't because none of these people knew me and they certainly didn't know yeah. that I was the victim. So they were just talking about rape in a more abstract sense, and it was very much like, oh, this is terrible and this poor girl's her life is ruined right and i was i remember hearing that and being like what is going on like who were these people to pronounce that my life is ruined right and then also just thinking like that's actually kind of an irresponsible thing to say even though i know it's from a place of um sympathy but like you know you if if you're saying on air that a a girl has just been a woman has just been raped and her life is ruined like what does that what impact is that going to have on on her who could be listening or other people who are listening and have also been victims or to somebody who in the future it might happen to and might remember hearing this and thinking that like oh my life is now ruined so you know i think we have to be quite responsible about the ways we talk about rape um And I particularly remember listening, you know, following the whole, the news stories about my rape and thinking, like, where in all of this is there a space for me to talk, right? Because it was just sort of assumed as the victim, I was going to live the rest of my life in shame and silence, right? Or I'd be too ashamed to want to talk about it. So um, I think somehow that those early experiences with the media kind of prompted me to do a lot of the work I do now, because I just realized, mm. well, no, actually, you know, victims and survivors do need to speak up. 
it's not it's not every individual's responsibility to do that but like as a whole mm. like our voice needs to be recognized as probably the most legitimate voice um the most legitimate perspective around this issue because we're the ones who've lived through it and we can say this is how lives are affected and again if you look at all those lives as i say my ted talk if you look at all the lives if you look at the statistics that's like a big swathe of the human population that's been affected by sexual assault and most of that impact goes unspoken right so i think you know with me too the me too movement suddenly started to make people realize the volume of experiences out there um you know, it's weird to say now in 2020, you know, halfway through 2020 when the pandemic's happening and like Me Too is no longer the big hashtag, um, mm. how those structural changes are going to happen um, that are going to hopefully make the criminal justice systems like more effective and hold perpetrators to account. Um, you know, just because Harvey Weinstein's been convicted and is in jail, does that mean every every perpetrator will be? Don't know, yeah. you know. So I don't think I would have predicted it happening in the way that it happened, but yeah, of course I knew there was a huge volume mm-hmm. of crimes happening out there, and I knew that there were a lot of people that had been affected and that were kind of angry about the silence. So um, I think hopefully... And the silence is bizarre because it is such a common thing. Like you said, one in five um, have experienced mm-hmm. some form of sexual assault. I mean, it's just the silence surrounding that is bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, and then the ignorance that results... Uh, from the silence right i remember um i was in some uh some well effectively sort of a media training session for phd students because i'm doing my phd now on on how rape survivors are engaging with the media as a form of activism and so i was in this media training with other um other phd students right um and for some bizarre reason we're pretty much all women and the people doing the training were men i don't know how it turned out to be like that but uh so i remember talking about my um my my research topic and bringing up that statistic like one in five okay fine let's say maybe one in six women um will experience sexual assault in their lifetime and the guy doing the training was like one in six he's like nah that's impossible like i don't believe that right he just said that like just as a kind of gut reaction to that statistic mm. and then after he left like he stepped out of the room and the woman next to me was like oh, i'm really glad you're doing this research because like i'm a victim too right so like literally the guy denied it and there was another <laughs> victim sitting right next to me which proved the statistics so um yeah i just think unless you're aware of it and i certainly had that level of ignorance before my own experience so unless you're aware mm. of it you don't realize how widespread it is and and how impactful it is on individual lives um so i think that's what kind of what drove me to, to do all the work i do now as sort of an activist and, and as a writer and a researcher yeah. on it well it's it's important work because like you said um it's so hard for these victims to have a voice and a lot of the times they don't want to speak up because of the impact that it's going to have on their life and their community. Yeah. So it takes somebody like you to come out and go, well, okay, I'll be your voice for you in a way because I know you can't or, you know, are unable. And it's great that you are able and that you've got such a, I mean, you've just got such a powerful voice because not only are you good at speaking about it, you're good at writing about it too. And yeah. You've probably written songs about it. Well, I mean, yeah, but at the same time, I don't want to speak for all victims because, you know, I know my experience is different and probably quite, you know, unique in certain ways. Um, so, you know, for me, every time I speak, it's important for me to highlight, actually, stranger rapes are quite rare. It's it's important for me to highlight how other people react and, you know, mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, there's people that go their entire lives without telling somebody that they've been raped. I remember a friend of mine said that, 
you know, her grandmother on her deathbed told her that she'd been raped, uh, and but she kept that secret her entire life, you know, um, and mm-hmm. that sort of the shadow of that can have a big impact on how you live your life, right? Um, so, you know, my experience is quite different in some ways, so I don't want to, I can't claim to... No, no. <laughs> no, I don't mean I don't mean you represent what I'm what I mean to say is that you're you're being an advocate for change and understanding. Yeah. Um uh-huh. and that's important because to 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 at least make it easier for people if they're unfortunate enough to go through it then they won't have the shame because it's not shameful anymore. They won't feel the guilt or whatever other whatever other things that people did when there was this um, silence surrounding these crimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like books are quite important because in the year after my assault, I read a number of memoirs by other rape survivors and those were incredibly helpful for me you know um because i was able to read like here's another person that went through a rape Mm. similar to mine uh, quite violent you know um and they lived through it and they were able to write about it in the end and there was an aftermath and it was a difficult aftermath but eventually things got better um so Mm. i definitely remember thinking like my life is never going to get better and just being in that sort of feeling that lost um was really tough and Mm. you know there there was suicide ideation i can totally understand why people may turn to that way of thinking because of the kind of impact and the kind of damage that these crimes cause um so I think it's also the injustice of it that annoys me well more than annoys me that that you know enrages me that somebody somebody like Harvey Weinstein can or other perpetrators can commit this many crimes and go you know un, unchallenged and yeah. that every single crime they commit that's another life that's impacted so um that's one reason why we do need to speak out just because you know you don't you know i who knows that that perpetrator you know my 15 year old perpetrator like i wouldn't be surprised if he attacked other people before so he certainly knew how to attack women and if i hadn't reported it, he may have done it to other women and he may still be doing it to other women but you know now he's got a criminal record at least so um yeah I, I just kind of wish the onus wasn't entirely on victims to have to do all the reporting, all the educating, you know, hopefully, you know, the public system out there is... Well, I like the idea, because you, I mean, you've also said that um, people don't go from zero to hero. You don't become a rapist straight away. There's usually probably indicating behaviours beforehand, yeah. whether it's verbal abuse or whatever. Um, and it's our responsibility as a society to call out that behavior so if you see somebody being abusive to a woman then you should say we don't you know you you can't do that don't behave that way you mustn't because then at least they're checked yeah so that they're not free to act in this way and then it builds yeah you know and and I think that's super important I mean we've all seen that where a guy is arguing with his girlfriend or something in the street mm. or whatever and and we sort of go oh, I don't want to get involved I don't want to get involved but it's actually okay to step up and go hey guys you know yeah let's let's chill out yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah um but of course it's difficult yeah it's difficult to know when to go from being like just a bystander to somebody that wants to stop mm. something from happening um mm. but i mean if you see it in your friends or your I don't know, 
Well, we're both raising boys. Yeah. So we just <laughs> make sure we raise good ones. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> I do think that's where it starts. It starts with it starts with the children, and it starts with education, and it starts with teaching people respect for other people. Yeah. No, absolutely. And like, and it's been weird. I mean, now, so I have a six-month-old um, baby boy now, and you know, I haven't even thought about all that stuff that lies ahead in terms no. of like, oh, how no. do I educate him about, you know the opposite sex and then also it's you know my my partner brought up like well how are we gonna at some point tell him that this had happened to you right because it's you know he's gonna sit down and google one day and you know he's gonna see my books and be like what this is about right so how do you tell your son that you know this awful thing happened to you and not that he's got anything to do with it but the way that any individual boy behaves could have an impact on another person so Mm. yeah well no I just think it's important I mean my son's nine and we we do check his like if he if he is physically intimidating his sister or you know just being you know we just sort of say hang on you you know you've got to be careful you've got to be respectful you know we're and I think it does start as young as that and even younger of teaching people to have respect for others and yeah and uh, all of that sort of stuff so that they grow up to be good, solid, kind, caring, sensitive men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big job. I know, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's what lies ahead of me for my next yeah. the rest of my but life. It's, it's great, though, that, I mean, you you know, what, you're 12 years on and you've rebuilt your life and now you've got your own child and everything. I just think that's fantastic for you, Winnie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and if uh, honestly, if you'd even told me two years ago that, in 2020 oh first of all there'd be a pandemic and like you know america's gonna be i mean aside from that if you told me in 2020 i'd be raising a child and you know in a partnership with somebody i I wouldn't have believed you um because i you know i i went for most of my life after the assault like being very wary of men and you know of course i dated and all that kind of stuff and i had like one relationship after the assault which then ended very badly um some of that is in the novel um but uh you know, I just kind of took a certain amount of pride from from not having, you know, a, a romantic relationship in my life and at the same time being quite mm. about it. But then at the same time, you know, there was, I was just like, how am I ever, how am I ever going to get to a point where I'm going to be in a relationship with someone? Because I just, I yeah. felt like so much baggage, right? Or what other yeah. people call baggage. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, and so it was the one thing I was quite sad about, right, in a bizarre mm. way. Um, and then I finally I decided at one point I'm like, you know what, I'm just not not gonna care, right? <laughs> like twenty, yeah. I'm like I'm really busy with book promoting my novel now. I'm not even gonna try to date. So I just sort of like, like I just crossed it off a list. I was just like, you know what, it's more rewarding for me now to be talking about mm. my book and to be talking to people around this issue than it is for me to be like you know wondering if some guy's gonna text me back or not right so I just stopped caring and then um I turned 40 at the end of 2018 and um realized like well I kind of would like to be a mother and all that kind of stuff you know be nice to be in a relationship Mm -hmm. I have zero idea how I'm gonna go about doing that because I just can't stand the thought dating even right um so I ended up like finding a therapist uh, to work with me <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds on cognitive behavior therapy to get me back into dating because I'm like I just I know yeah. I have the worst attitude through dating and I'm like if I can just change this attitude a little bit and um, 
sort of make myself go on dates, then like maybe at least that might give me a chance, right? You know? So he actually would just assign me homework and be like, all right, set up some dating profiles online and be like, all right, fine. For then to be like, all right, go on some dates and I'd be like, oh, fine, right? And so it was like, because it was being assigned to me, I put zero emotional effort into it. I'm like, yeah, I'm just doing this thing because my therapist wants me to do it. And bizarrely, I, so I set up three dates and bizarrely on my third date, I met my current partner, right? So yeah. I was like, oh, I actually kind of like that guy. Um, so yeah. And then unexpectedly I got pregnant kind of like two, three months later. So um, wow. yeah, I ended up being pregnant and being like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, now I guess oh. I have a chance of being a mother. So, oh. so we just sort That's of decided so to do nice. it. Yeah. That's so nice because, you know, we've talked for most of this podcast about a surprising event that was really really bad and then they you're telling me about a surprising event that was really really good yeah yeah and like it's and it's something about also how quickly your life can change i mean and sometimes in really bad ways um or in really good ways and i guess one thing i've sort of learned or kind of life philosophy i have now is that i mean it's impossible to be in control of everything like you're not going to be able to control who you come across in your life right on any given day um I guess you can control your reaction to it or what you do with those encounters. Um, so, yeah. So for me, you know, I kind of went from just thinking like, I'm never going to, you know, have any of that in my life to being like, Oh no. Yeah. I'm like changing nappies and breastfeeding all that kind of stuff. And that, that certainly like intensified kind of commitment that you have. To that yeah, yeah. Thing. Um, but being like, yeah, but this is not something I could have predicted two months ago, uh, two years ago. And it wasn't anything that I did that specifically that caused that to happen. It literally was just happenstance that this person came up in my hinge profile. Right. You know, so um, yeah, life throws all sorts of weird curveballs at you and, you know, some of them are good and some of them are bad, but you know, if you enjoy the good ones and at least, you know, you're doing the best you can really. Yeah. That's so true. Um, Winnie, I've got to say thank you so much for talking to me tonight. It's just, it's, I mean, I just take my hat off to you. I think you're so strong and so resilient and I think anybody listening to this who is in the depths of despair like where you were hearing your voice and hearing the strength in your voice is going to give them hope so thank you Nikki thanks for inviting me that's really really brilliant thanks so much and all the best with the next six months because the first year is the toughest I can tell you that having done it twice it's good to know it gets easier (laughs) I always think the first birthday should actually be a big party for the parents because they got through that first year (laughs) All right. Thanks, Winnie. Thanks. Oh, first of all, I'd like to thank Winnie for spending so much time with me. Uh, It is an amazing chat. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, And she's so giving of her time to help others. So um, thank you, Winnie, so much for that. Um, Over on our website, this-is-strong.com, I've got so many links to other stuff that Winnie's done. I've got links to her website, her TED talk, just heaps and heaps of stuff. So make sure you head over there and click on her page and you'll find loads of other stuff. She's written articles, she's been interviewed loads in the press. So if you're interested in her story, which I'm sure you are, then go over to the website and read more about her. Keep well, everybody. Look after yourselves in this lockdown. And until next time, stay strong.